I have one of the most primitive wood stove waffle irons. My son got it at a estate auction, and I was going to make that baby work. And I knew that it had to be really hot. Anyway, one of the handles was broken. There's a piece of wood stuck in it, you know, like a limb of a tree or something. And um, I had five failures. I mean, it total failures. But I got onto it. And when I got the temperature just right, and I flipped it, you know, you have to flip them over. Yep. And when I flipped it and I opened it up, I had a perfect waffle. But that's how you learn anything in life. You don't give up. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Well, what does an almost 89-year-old woman wake up and do at five o'clock in the morning these days? Well, that's that's easy to do. You just hop out of bed and you're in motion because you've been laying there for 10 minutes knowing what you're going to do. Okay. You plan it. You plan. That's what you do when you first wake up in the morning is mm-hmm. plan your day for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you hop out of bed. Then what? You did well, some gardening today? Yeah, after all the necessary things that you have to do, um, this morning, I just dressed hurriedly and ran and got in my car and drove over to the garden, one of my gardens, and uh, turned the water off because I didn't want to wake up the people in the house to turn it off, and it needed to be turned off. And so then I came back and um, uh, parked the car in front of my chicken pen, and I had you know, their water and feed and the chicken bucket of scraps and fed the chickens. They didn't need to be woke up. They they knew I was coming. And then I picked grass or fresh alfalfa to supplement their wheat or laying mash because they just lay yellow, yellow yolks when you feed them, you know, green grass. And um, I get a kick out of free range because that's you know, they gave a name to something that we've always done. And, uh, but you can't free range now because the neighbor's dogs eat them, mm-hmm. the chickens. And you can't, you can't have roosters because it wakes up the neighbors. So it's kind of a different deal than living way out in the country. Yeah, you're still pretty far out here. I mean, you've got neighbors oh, a yeah. couple hundred yards away. Yeah, no, this is country. I've never lived in town. I can't live in town. <laughs> But, uh, no, I have really nice neighbors, and I did get away, rid of the rooster um, because it was understandable that it was waking them up at four in the morning, and they waited a year to tell me this. That was nice. And um, so I got rid of the rooster. Roosters are kind of a menace anyways. Yeah. Yeah, they do have a function, though, and that's to raise baby chicks, and that kind of threw a little monkey wrench into my my chicken management (laughs) because raising baby chicks is a pain but the way you do it is have a rooster well it's it's necessary to have a rooster because your eggs won't be fertile and and you have to have hens that like to set 
they bred them for laying now and they don't like to set. But if you get ones that like to set and they're part jungle fowl or vanity, well, they're good. So you just let them lay a clutch of eggs and let them set on them and let them hatch them and then they raise them. And you don't have to do anything. They protect them from the predators and um, that's the only way to go. So this year we got little chicks because my, well, my chicken flock got out of hand and it was like six generations inbred and we disproved the theory that you can't do that because they were all laying and they were extremely hardy but they looked funny <laughs> feathers on their feet anyway long story short we had to get I had to get rid of my other ones and start all over again with pullets what's a pullet a pullet is a teenage chicken Okay. So somewhere between a, a chick and a chicken that can lay an egg. And it's a female. Yeah. A female that's um, your future egg layer, your mature hen. But pullets um, lay about six months. That's that's about the average of when a pullet starts to lay. And she lays little bitty eggs and they, they grow larger incrementally and um, mine are at the stage now where they're laying beautiful brown eggs and getting bigger every day. And and the only thing is that, um, well, it's a long story, but my daughter-in-law hatched out some eggs from a lady that raised chocolate chickens. And they aren't chocolate chickens. They have a long name I can't pronounce, but they lay chocolate-colored eggs. Anyway, they hatched. And one hatched. The rest of them weren't any good. They were rotten. Evidently not fertile and they were rotten. But one chick laid. And so she tenderly took care of it. But it was lonely. So she bought a chick at the Gringers and put it in there. And wouldn't you know, that chick grew up to be a rooster. So I have a rooster down there that's going to have to get the axe and get his head chopped off. And he's going to have to be a friar for Sunday dinner. But he hasn't started to crow yet. So until he crows, yeah, the neighbors don't know. Sure. So as long as he's a, a, a quiet rooster, he gets to live. But as soon as he becomes a noisy rooster, you're going to kill him and have him for dinner. If he's a smart rooster, he won't crow. <laughs> I think eventually he'll crow. What do you think? I don't know. I've raised... A they used to call me Chicken Jane when I look at the grain growers. I know far too much about chickens. And I have never had, I have never, ever had a rooster that didn't crow. So this one's a study, you know. He's a, he's ugly as heck. Uh, he's gangly and, um, and he's already, you know, performing like a rooster. And the hens got together and they don't like him. What's ripe in your garden right now? Zucchini, that's the easiest thing to raise. Crookneck, oh my gosh, squash. everywhere I go, people are trying to give me zucchinis right now. You have never eaten them properly prepared, obviously. You rub them in olive oil and garlic and you grill them. You cut them up and saute them in olive oil and with garlic and herbs and scrambled eggs and onions and tomatoes. Oh, there's so many ways, you know. How do people normally cook zucchini that you don't like it? I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying everywhere I go, oh. like everybody's got zucchini right now, you know. Yeah, lock I go down your to, doors. I go down to my, my mom's to, to get to get <laughs> eggs, and she won't give me eggs anymore unless I take zucchini with me. It's like, good grief. It's yeah, getting out it's, of control. Uh, yeah, it is. And then, <clears throat> but of late, as of late, it's gotten really popular uh, because people go, did you bake zucchini bread yet? No, I can't find any zucchini. And then they come up with all these recipes. But it's a very satisfying vegetable to raise because it's like radishes, you know. I read a thing one time that was really funny that if you want to grow zucchini, you plant it and then you just kind of chop it up with a shovel and turn the hogs in and then you have enough zucchini. It doesn't get out of hand, but it won't die. That's how hardy it is. Mm. It just, you know, it's very hardy. And um, there's all kinds of jokes about it. And, of course, around here, you do have to lock your car when you 
go to church or anything because it'll be full of skinny when you come out. Yeah, and then squash later on. Everybody ends up with so much squash. It's ridiculous. Well, crookneck squash is another cult. You know, I come from California a long time ago, and people say I say squash and warsh, and I do, but that's normal. But they say it's squash and wash. So, you know, I apologize to anybody that listens yeah. to this but uh crookneck squash is what my grandma wilson raised in Rio linda california she lived to be almost 103 and when it was producing she ate it three times a day so i do too and it's so good and you don't need to doctor it up just just parboil it with butter a lot of good butter and salt and pepper i really like acorn squash yes those are good baking squash yeah mm-hmm. A little brown sugar, a little butter, a little bit of salt. Yeah, hard to beat. Yeah, it's um, easy. Colored vegetables, according to my eye doctor, the more colorful the better. Like I have the beginning of macular now because one in three people that are old get macular, but I think I've arrested it by eating a lot of colorful vegetables and squash is is colorful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, this weekend is the beginning of archery season, and I'm curious about this in your lifetime because, gosh, you were born in 1933, so only 20 years before that, maybe less, would have been when Ishii um, came out of the mountains of California and reinvigorated archery in America and made archery what it is today. Ishi was was the last the last wild Indian is kind of the the way he's described. He was living in in the Mendocino National Forest. Uh, he'd lost all of his family, lost all of his tribe, and he eventually, you know, was just dying of loneliness and came. I read about the, yeah. I, I read the book six times. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, but Saxton Pope, um, who was a professor, basically befriended him and learned about archery because of him and then ended up traveling the world and learning archery from other places. And Pope mm-hmm. and Young is the um, name of the archery record book um, after Saxon Pope, but really it's because of Ishii. So not too long before you were born is when, you know, archery got this spark that grew again. And today archery is more popular than it ever has been. When do you remember people beginning to bow hunt? Not till you were my grandson. <laughs> really? Really. Yeah. I mean, it. when I grew up, and nobody, nobody hunted meat with, you know, they used guns. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, you know, really started to gain in popularity in the 60s, 70s. Um, but I was curious to your recollection when you were starting to see people hunt with bows. No, in the in the foothills I grew up in in Northern California were black-tailed deer. Yeah. And my family didn't hunt them. Um, my, you know, I was married young and my husband, your grandfather, he hunted. That got me into the hunting. My daddy was a dairyman and he didn't have time to hunt. But our uncles from Sacramento would come up and hunt pheasants and quail and doves and ducks but that's shotgun yeah and my mama would get up in the morning and make homemade biscuits for him and that was just a big thing but not big game hunting wasn't until i married um my husband and that was a hunting family right and it wasn't long and i was you know gutting out deer and and making um jerky and you know granddad nash um You know how he made jerky? He just got heavy salt water boiling, very heavy concentrated concentration of salt, cut strips of venison, put a string in it, and dipped it three times, and then hung it up over the wood stove, and boy, that kept a Hmm. long, long time. Yeah, I bet. And it preserved it. I just remember that. I might have to try that. Yeah. Might mix a little sugar in with it too. Yeah, yeah, you could be creative. Yeah, but what was we're getting away from the subject? Well, that's all right. 
Granddad Nash, Chief Nash, uh, my great granddad. Uh, what was his wife's name? Laverne. Laverne. So I heard a story that one time he sat down to dinner that Laverne had made and there was no meat. And he said, why is there no meat? And she said, because we don't have any meat. And he said, that will never happen again. And it didn't. Is that a true story? Well, I haven't heard that story, but I believe it to be the truth. Because my father-in-law uh, rode with Charlie Russell. And that era of cowboys, you know, they lived on wild meat or, or beef. And in the form of jerky, because there was no refrigeration, but meat was maybe the only thing they had at the meal because meat will stick with you. It builds muscle, strength. It does all the things. It was well, like the Native Americans, the Indians, meat. Yeah. 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 Especially uh, northern tribes were a lot more meat-focused than some of the southern tribes that could be you know, better at, at farming practices and things like yeah, that. Yeah, corn. Yeah. No, but it, I, I think that that's interesting that uh, – what you said about your granddad being sort of too busy with the dairy to be concerned with hunting. And I'm sure that there was, you know, a meat byproduct from being around the dairy as well. We did some math on it the other day. And before, before he got into the larger scale dairy, he was milking a thousand pounds of milk by hand every single day. That's incredible. Well, when he worked for Ador Farms in Camarillo during the Depression, you know, he was lucky he had a job. Most people didn't have a job, but he had a job, so we, we had a nice little house. Dad said his forearms were just massive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Milking cows, I mean, you know, I'm strong today because I milked a lot of cows. Yeah. You know, I'm strong. It, and when you're young and you just keep doing that, you know, you don't get arthritis or anything because you just use them. And, um, well, I inherited, you know, a lot of genes, too. But, yeah, Daddy, and Daddy loved his work. He loved the cows. He, he, he was so happy because he had such an unhappy childhood, and he was living his dream. You know, he'd milk those cows, and he gloried in the quality of his milk. And, you know, um, it was all a labor of love. You know, if you love what you do, it's going to be good. And he raised the best golden Guernseys in the state of California without even trying because he loved it so much. He watched what they ate. They were contented cows. I mean, those cows didn't want for anything. They had shade to lay down in and chew their cud. They had the best feed. I mean, we went without clothes so that those, I mean, fancy clothes, so that those cows could eat a balanced ration to not only grow them, but to produce the quality of their milk. And um, and we didn't know. I mean, we weren't poor. My mother made all our clothes. It's just that we only had like two dresses. But you had to pay the feed bill for the cows because that was our income. And it was marginal. It wasn't much. But we were making a living on the dairy, you know, on a little 240-acre place that he cleared. I mean... It was oak trees, and Daddy was out there cutting trees between milkings, you know, so it could make pasture and digging ditches to irrigate. Lloyd Carlson, um, the rancher that I worked for there in uh, Twin Bridges, Montana, he said uh, that you can't starve a dollar off a cow. No. And that's absolutely true. Mm -mm. Yeah. Nope. If I didn't take care of my chickens like I did, people go, well, how do you have this good luck with my chickens? I'm there every morning for them. It's just like my kids. You feed them. You love them. You treat them just like a garden. You're going to get a good garden. If you don't do your kids right, you're not going to get kids. It's just, it's just a common sense thing. And, and I, had, I had a perfect example of that with my mom and dad. You know, we had balanced meals. And even though mama was so busy, we, she had a vegetable garden. And we ate dairy, beef, you know. Dairy beef's not all that bad. And pot roast and stew. We had meat every day. We had eggs every day. And we had fresh stuff. And uh, Mama canned. She canned hundreds of quarts 
we were in a fruit area, she can, hundreds of quarts of peaches and cherries and plums and pears. And um, that's just what you did. One of my favorite canned things that you make is uh, dill pickled green beans. How do you do it? Well, you just, first you have to raise the good green beans. See, everything starts with fresh, fresh uh, produce. Um, so you pick them. You come home and put them in sterilized jars, stand them up straight, and then you make a brine of um, a, a ratio of vinegar and water and salt, and I put garlic in and dill, and then you pour that over them, seal them, and that's it. You don't have to boil them? You just pour in the hot solution? Oh, you know, um, the extension service and stuff, Everybody, when people haven't canned as long as the old timers, they have to make it safe. Mm. Uh, so they do a boiling water bath for an X amount of time to seal them and make it safe. But when you know how to can, like, you know, you know the basic rules of canning uh, and sterilize your jars and your lids and you're very careful about what you, it, it's just a learned thing that, you know, but you, you can't blame them because women, you know, young girls today haven't been taught by their parents. Yeah. It's it's interesting to me that um, that canning is a gender role thing. I went down uh, and bought a, a couple bushels of peaches last year and canned them. And when uh, when I was picking up the peaches, the lady that was selling them goes, "Well, isn't it nice of you to pick these up for your wife?" And I was like, "Well, I'm not married." And uh, she goes, "Well, who's going to can these?" And I said, "I am." And uh, she goes, well, my word, I've never heard of a man can of peaches. I was like, well, I'm going <laughs> to. Good for you, James. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, it's a skill we can't let go because they're so much better for you. And um, and it's not that hard. It's and, not that hard. Peaches are, peaches are a great way to start, too. Oh, yeah. And, and, and what, uh, to me... It's just such a thrill to take them out of the canner, and there they are, you know. It's not work. Not work. No. It's beautiful. Well, so much food preservation now um, requires freezing or refrigeration. And if the power goes out for a couple of days, you're done. Like, you just yep. lost all your food. That's nuts. Yep. So, I think learning how to dehydrate some stuff... Um, we have a freeze dryer, which does an incredible job. That's not for everybody though, but dehydrators are, are inexpensive. Um, anybody can do that. Water bath canning, that's very inexpensive. And if you get a good pressure canner, that thing will last multiple lifetimes. You're absolutely right. And that's, that's still how I eat. That's how I raised my family was on home grown everything because I'll tell you these preservatives I'm sorry, folks, but they'll get you. They're not good. Yeah. It's just not good. And like you said, when the electricity goes out, it went out here for, when we had that storm, it was out for four hours. And I went, oh, all these electronic things we have around here are absolutely worthless. Mm -hmm. And I have a little um, cabin on the creek down there that's off the grid. And um, I got a land phone and a wood cook stove. And um, if I have to, I can carry water from the creek fire up the wood cook stove boil a little bit if i think i'm gonna get bugs but i probably wouldn't but i mean i can live off the grid <laughs> and how many people can say that well there's more folks that can say it than there are that can do it and and, and i guess i'm a little bit wrong there because i think that we're all capable of it there's yeah you're right as far as toughness goes like humans you know, existed for 60,000 years the way we are now without electricity. This is a new thing with us being comfortable and, and dependent upon electricity and, and the technologies that come with it. So we're all capable of it. We just need to brush up on those skills a little bit. Well, let me tell you a story about down there. I have people literally from all over the world that have come down there. And in the winter... And so I, I go down there for two or three months now in the winter, and I cook on my wood stove. And they, they go, oh, 
and they have a distant memory of visiting a great-grandma once when they were little and they never forgot the stove so they look at the stove and they touch it reverently and they go can I do this and a lot of them I teach because you know you can't just put wood in there starting a fire is an art you know I can't believe that people they don't really know how to start a fire or the type of wood the wood that goes off heat and you have to adjust that heat and it's an art cooking a wood stove I just did it all my life so I just took it for granted but you know these people don't and um, you shift you have a, a solid top and you shift it back when you want it to simmer you can't turn it on high and low you got to know where that is and us old grandmas we just know but you know and so pretty soon I got them doing hot cakes and stuff and these people just, they write me letters and they say, what, what you have down there in that little cabin and how you live is one of the most thrilling experiences I've ever had in my life. And these are people that are millionaires and they've been all over the world. And they just want to come back and live simple. So that says something about our age. We're so reliant on technology that there's this great hunger I I observe to go back to simple things and then you can go out and listen to the creek going by and smell the fresh air and listen to the birds sing and the morning wake up and the stars come out and there's no light pollution you can see the light and the stars and you know this is what what the world needs right now and I don't know how to you know because there's so many people but this is what they crave and they don't even know they crave it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think cooking on a wood cook stove is, is not all that hard. It just requires a little bit of understanding and patience. And mm-hmm. um, you can't just set your cast iron pan on one part of it and walk away and think that everything is going to be all right. What I am consistently defeated by, though, is a cast iron waffle maker. I have never made a good waffle with a cast iron waffle maker. I don't know if it can be done. Well, I'll have to tell you, it's hard. (laughs) And um, I'm stubborn. You know, I'm stubborn and I don't give up. And I was down there alone and I had nothing but time and uh, I was going to write an essay about this. And so I have one of the most primitive wood stove waffle irons. My son got it at a, a state auction. And I was going to make that baby work. And I knew that it had to be really hot. Anyway, one of the handles was broken. There's a piece of wood stuck in it, you know, like a limb of a tree or something. And um, I had five failures. I mean, it total failures. But I got onto it. And when I got the temperature just right, and I flipped it, you know, you have to flip them over. Yep. And when I flipped it and I opened it up, I had a perfect waffle, but that's how you learn anything in life. You don't give up. Yeah, do it wrong a whole bunch of times in a row until you finally figure it out. But the timing of, I mean, it's the heat. And then um, I oil the um, the griddle, yeah. the grids, but I finally got a perfect waffle. But let me tell you, it was hard. It was well-earned. It is hard. I think I'm not getting it hot enough. And also the the one that I was using wasn't seasoned perfectly and that's a problem because then the waffle just sticks to both sides. You go to open it up, it rips it in half and then you've got this hot waffle iron that you can't get the ripped in half waffle out of and you just give up and you let it cool down and then it takes you forever to scrub it out and then you're starting over the next day and you're mad to begin with. I don't know. You're, yeah. you're just better at it than I am, Grandma. I've, well, I've got to no, work out it no, more. Well, no, you are absolutely right, James. If that thing has lost its season, yeah, you best give it away. Yeah. Uh, because I don't really know how. Somebody has, has just mistreated it awfully. And <laughs> it's just, it's hopeless. Um, but this one had, had, had the right seasoning. And that, you know, cast iron's tricky and you... Let's talk about cast iron a little bit. That's all I use. Yeah. And you have to keep it seasoned. 
Mm-hmm. How, All do, how do you time. do it? Well, you don't let it sit with water in it for three days. Yeah. That's a no-no. Or food. Like if you let food sit oh. in it for very long, especially yeah. anything that's got tomato in it, Yeah, you're done. Well, I learned from the old cowboys like Kid Marks. And, of course, I've cooked on cast iron for a long, long time. I used to cater. They'd fly me into Red's Horse Ranch with my heavy cast iron Dutch ovens. And I did the, you know, the meat and beans in the ground. That was my specialty. But back to cast iron, you have to, you have to keep it seasoned and care for it just very diligently. And, um, and you know, they say don't eat a lot of fatty things like bacon. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like good bacon. And cook bacon in there and leave that bacon grease in there. Don't wash that pan. Just kind of take a little brush and put bacon grease Get a little paper towel, leave it in there. And every time you use a pan, and I wash them with, um, you know, soap and water. And and then I, they're, they're hot from the hot water I put over there. Take that paper towel with the bacon grease and smear it around there. It's seasoned. It's ready to go. Yeah. So you use, like, Dawn dish soap on your cast iron, right? No, I... I I use Wallow Valley cleaning products. Oh, okay. And of the course. dishwashing yeah. liquid um, won't hurt your septic tank, and it's green. It's mm. good for the environment, and it's very good on cast iron. Gotcha, gotcha. So a lot of people think that you can't use soap at all, ever. But if if it's seasoned really well, you can use a mild soap, and it doesn't hurt anything at all. If it's seasoned right, and like say you've had something fried, and it's kind of stuck well, I just pour a little hot water for my tea in there to loosen it up. Mm-hmm. And then I do the dishes immediately. And when it's still hot, I use soap because, you know, you, you want a clean pan for your next. You don't want the last night's meal to taste like your brand new thing. So just do that. But always take that. And sometimes you don't need to because if you use them all the time like I do, they're seasoned. And if you clean them right away... You know, but yeah. if they look a little dull, just take that um, paper towel and put it in bacon grease or bear fat, bear mm-hmm. lard, Crisco, Crisco, yeah. anything like that, olive oil, yeah, and just keep it like that, and then she's ready to go. Yeah. If you're starting over, like if if it's lost its seasoning, something's gone wrong. Maybe you bought this thing at a yard sale; it was all rusted up. Whatever. You know, you can get rust out of them with vinegar and water really easily. It doesn't take much scrubbing. You don't have to go crazy with a wire brush or... Don't ever use a wire brush on cast iron. Yeah. That is like reasons to go to jail. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Prison. Although my husband, Doug, um, you know, or steel wool. Oh, my God. You get slapped in the hand. Steel wool? Mm. Oh, no. No, please no. Be gentle. But my husband, Doug, once took my fry pans that were all seasoned, but they had a buildup on the bottom, out to the shop and took one of those things that like grinders. Yeah. Like a wire wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And he came back and here was this pan. It took me five years to season that baby. Hmm. Yeah. No, don't do that. Yeah. Now, looking over at these things right now, there's like different epochs of history underneath the layers on that one on the left. Fed a lot of people. You should see the ones in the oven. But that doesn't hurt it. It's like, you know, my car has a a deer ran into me up at the lake. I was going five miles an hour, ran off the rain and ran into my door and it didn't die, but the door squeaks. And so, but the motor is really good. Hmm. So it, I'm not going to fix the door because I keep my motor of my car running really good. Well, this is like the fry pan. The inside where you cook's really good. The outside's built up. But you, it's the motor that is important. Yeah. yeah. It's a long ways from its heart. Sure. That doesn't, doesn't hurt <laughs> anything to have some layers of crust built up on the outside. No, not at all. You should see cow camps. Oh, but those old boys, they knew their pants hanging up are all seasoned. Mm-hmm. They can whip them off the nail and put them on that wood stove. You should have seen Kid Marks make sourdough biscuits. We'd be riding all day long 
up there at Harl Butte, you know, him and Mary and I come in, unsaddle the horses. He'd go into the little shack, the little cabin at the cow camp at Mahogany. I was there yesterday. You were at Mahogany yesterday? Yeah. Wow. Well, anyway, that's where I had the best sourdough biscuits of my life. And um, and he'd come in and start the fire up. He had the sourdough rising well, all day, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and he took out of the jug and he put it in a, a wash basin, put flour in it, dumped it in there, worked it all up like this, took globs, put it in this grease pan with bacon grease, turned it over once, set it in the warming oven. of the, It was in the fall, warming oven of the stove. Boy, those babies just rose up, you know, and he went about cooking other stuff and Mary opened a can of her peaches and caught in a half hour we had those those biscuits were so light they just floated up out of that pan yeah no mahogany cow camp still still there got a sign there now there are some folks getting set up for archery camp i think but i was out there coyote hunting and uh ended up calling in a pack of coyotes and shooting one at last light not not at mahogany more out towards jane's ridge oh jane's ridge Uh uh-huh yeah yep where the McAllister's ran sheep, my, my mom's side. Really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that. On Jane's Ridge, spelled J-A-Y-N-E. Yeah. And I spent many happy times in um, Harl Butte, and um, the Marflat cow camp was moved. Anyway, I got quite a story on that, but at, at what they call um, Harl Butte cow camp. Yeah. Well, we've had a, a few grizzlies move through the country in the last few years coming out of Idaho and stuff but um, prior to that the last grizzly that was known to be killed in in Oregon was killed by my grandpa out there on really uh, on Jane's Ridge yeah I think there's a sign about it in the Oregon Zoo actually which is a little bit odd that is very (laughs) odd (laughs) yeah zoo oh my god I wonder what that connection was I don't know wow I don't know that's interesting country the huckleberries are not looking good this year. Too hot. There's very few of them. What's there is little tiny. A lot of them just dried before they could even get ripe. Well, I guess you're not going to get your pie. No, not this year. Not uh, this year. They're good. It's that pie's good with blackberries, and it's a good blackberry year. Yeah, for sure. Well, the blackberries are a little smarter because they grow down by the creeks where they're going to get water no matter what. Right. There's uh, terrible droughts in Europe right now. I don't know if you heard heard no. about that. But um, they're finding these uh, these carvings in rocks um, that are like 500 years old from the last time that the water levels were this low. And it, they, they call them like hunger rocks or starvation rocks. But there's, uh, there's carvings that say, if you can read this, prepare to die and stuff like oh that. Because, gosh. you know, obviously 500 years ago, if you had <laughs> this kind of drought, it's not like you could just order up some fresh rice from China. Like no. you're kind of out of luck but yeah they have they've had a terrible drought this year oh that's sad it really is well you know it hasn't been very long that we've in the total scheme of things that we have kept records on weather right and so that's very interesting that that would be written because we think we're going through weird times but maybe we're not you know maybe history repeats itself it's been so much weirder before Yes. Um, last year, I was doing so much research on Beringia, on the Bering Land Bridge, and uh, the the Pleistocene, which was our last major ice age. And that only ended like ten to fourteen thousand years ago. There's wow. glaciers that went all the way to Mississippi. Wow. It's interesting to me how you could have a landscape that was so covered with ice and glaciers and snow. And it's all white and it's reflecting any heat that can come in. And then somehow it warms up from that. You would think it would only get colder and colder. Like the more ice you have, the more it's going to reflect the sunlight. The colder it's going to be, the more ice you're going to have the next year. And it it went on for a couple million years like that. And then all of a sudden it starts to melt. Yep. There's so much we don't know. And I like that. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, humans... A lot of humans think they have it all figured out, but they don't. And um, and I like it that they haven't defined infinity. Sure. And I hope they don't. And if you look up at the stars at night, if you're a camper and 
I just spent a couple nights up at the lake with some friends, and we watched the Perseids meteor showers. Mm. And, of course, it's getting toward the tail end of them. But, you know, the black hole, and you contemplate all that. And there's there's no way that we're going to... There's a lot of magic goes on that I hope we never figure out, and I don't think we will, because we're just... You know, the universe has been here long before we have. And um, Well, you grew up during a time when cars were uncommon. You know, airplanes were uncommon. And now we're talking about figuring out how to populate Mars. What what an incredible time that you've been alive. I know. But, you know, you can't go backwards. My mother told me this. She was a very intellectual lady. And she said, you can't go back. You got to go forward, and I always remember that. And a lot of um, distinguished older people will say that. Oh, you get to be alive when these changes occur, you know. And when you look at it like that, um, it's a wonderful thing to be old and have, re- like you said, we didn't never had a car when I was growing up. We had a pickup, and I remember one time when. Us five kids were so excited. That pickup was old. I mean, when we'd go anywhere in it, we had to ride in the back because and the nuts and bolts would fall off of it. It was old. And and Mama says, we're going to go get a new car. So us kids, it was a hot day in the foothills of California, and we sat in the car, and we just waited for our daddy to drive this new car so we could see it. And we saw this guy come out of this shop. And we all peered out. And it was daddy, but it was in an, it was another used pickup. <laughs> we never had a car. Yeah. And um, but you know we were so raised so rich because we had freedom. Yeah. You know. So that that piece of ground that your dad bought was two hundred forty acres, mm-hmm. ran eighty head of cows, had a house. It wasn't really a house. It, it was a shack. It was a shack. Yeah. We had. An outhouse. Us kids never had our own bedroom. <clears throat> we had blankets that separated our rooms from my brother's room. And see, I got married at seventeen and left that shack. Mm-hmm. Later, they, you know, when they sold some property, the other kids, my, I was the oldest. They got to live in really modern houses. I remember what a shock it was to go up there, and my mother had a phonograph. She had a phonograph. I mean. We just had a radio, and TV didn't come until three of my... We didn't get a TV until three of my kids were born. Yeah. And um, there were horrible shows. I mean, they were just inner sanctum, and, um, but we, we were just fascinated with it. But I've seen so many changes, James, just it's so rapid, you know, that it's almost mind-boggling. But I'm still in that. I still have those skills... Sure. From the yeah. beginning. Before that country was farmland, the the 49ers had gone through it and dredged a lot of it, hadn't they? That was the heart of the gold country. Uh, El Dorado County was next to us. We were Placer County. That's Placer Mining, mm-hmm. where they used the water. And we had dredger ponds. There would be heaps of um, of rocks and gravel where they... And the ponds were left. And... Um, and there were ditches dug by the Chinese and the Chinese um, wheelbarrows, their shovels. Daddy would collect all these things. And um, and there was gold in Dodie's Ravine. All the ravines. They called them ravines, not creeks. Um, if you went down there and panned, you always got gold if you were patient. Because st- they couldn't get all the gold, right. gold out of there. But it just wasn't um, lucrative to do it later. Right. But um, but yeah, we were we were raised in the heart of of the gold country. Yeah, that was our heritage. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you know, Native Americans had been there for a long time before that. Oh yeah, the Spanish during that time as well. Not before the Native Americans, but for hundreds of years before oh, other yeah. Europeans got there. Yeah, the Miwok. We called them Digger Indians, but the Miwok. I think they were Miwok. Um, we had what we call Indian Rock. And there were little um, holes ground in the rock all over our ranch. But one particular one was huge. And the acorns. 
there were numerous acorns, and they took the acorns and they ground them with a with a um, stone pestle and made a sort of bread. And um, living was easy down there because it wasn't real cold in the winter, and they had deer and they had the acorn bread, and they had fish, and so they were not like the Nez Perce that were you know the tall and the hunters and the, mm-hmm. it's a totally different um, uh, deal, but. And up in Northern California was Ishii would be the same thing, the acorns, and he probably had the same kind of a thing. Yeah. That was an amazing story, Ishii. So incredible. Oh. Yeah. I've talked about it on the show before, but... You know, Theodore Kroger was the professor in charge of him at the University of California at Berkeley. Yep. And they took him down there. He ended up dying of pneumonia. But um, that was an interesting study. Um, and I felt sorry for Ishii because he was the last one. He comes stumbling out of there to that slaughterhouse. Yeah, expect him to be killed. To be killed, and he, and he left no trace for years, so he wouldn't be discovered. Um, I would have loved to have seen Ishii, and I always thought they should have let him because he he died in captivity. It was like a wild animal, you know. I think he was pretty happy though, from from what I've read. Um, you know, he had, he had a job, he, he marveled at a lot of like the goods that were available to him. One of his favorite, um, inventions that he got to use was glue, right? So think of all the things that he would have broken and needed to repair that could have been made possible with glue. But the closest thing he had to glue was like, uh, grinding up salmon skins or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you read more than Ishii then? Did you? Because Ishii just kind of... I've read a couple books about it. Okay, see, because yeah. Ishii doesn't cover that part. Right, yeah. 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 No, I mean, he, he, worked as a, he worked as a janitor in the school, but also did demonstrations on, on archery and on, uh, on how to make arrowheads and the ways that he survived. And, and he went back yeah. to that, that uh, canyon that he was living in with... Saxon Pope and um, and I think one other guy and showed them, you know, how he could make all these different sounds to call in birds and oh. um, his his range of vocalizations for, for mimicking animal sounds was massive. Oh. And uh, yeah, he was, he was shooting birds out of the air with his bow and like doing wow. really incredible things. Yeah. His style of shooting was also very different. Um, as was his language. His language was dissimilar to all the other North American native well, languages. Well, they said Stone Age. They yeah. think he came from the last of the Stone Age Indians. Yeah, or or much earlier. So his shooting style was Mongolian. Oh, interesting. Um, so he shot with his thumb to release the bowstring rather than his fingers, which was a major wow. difference. Yeah. And his left hand went on the bow, but the arrow went on the right side of the of the bow on the right side of the riser. Oh. Um, so he had a very, very unorthodox style of shooting, but it worked extremely it worked. well. Yeah. For He's, him. He survived. And modern American archery is, uh, is an amalgamation of, of archery styles from around the world, really collected by Saxon Pope. Um, but he started with Ishii and he, he found that the, the best bow in the world at the time was the English longbow. And really? he ended up taking styles from um, from the Persian Empire, from the from the British, from Native Americans, and and sort of combining them all to make a style of shooting that became American archery. That's fascinating. You've really read up on this, James. Oh, I mean, this is my thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Have you ever read Everett Roos? Yeah. Um, <sighs> Wilderness is in the title. Well, I've got three books on him, but he disappeared into the wilds. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. And he took a burrow and disappeared. And for years, they didn't find him. But he wrote letters home. Hmm. Um, But his mind, he was absolutely brilliant. But he just, he he was the best in the wilderness. That was where he... He had to be. I got three books sitting right over there, and that's a real study. So that's kind of like Ishii too, except that Ishii was lonely, and this guy was at home. Yeah. There, 
but he still had to have that connection. He wrote to his mother, and they, they got the letters. But his mind was incredible. Well, the type of doubt that Ishii must have had, you know, he, as, a, as a little kid, he'd seen most of his tribe get killed. As, as a young adult, he'd gotten separated from his family. Um, like they just, they got startled by some uh, surveyors. There was only four of them left, so they're split. And then I can't remember who he ended up with, but, the, you know, that member of his immediate family ended up dying. And then he made it a couple of years completely alone. And then to come into town and end up at a slaughterhouse of yeah. all places, yeah. what, what a horrible place for your mind to be. Oh, I just can't believe it. Well, this Professor Kroger uh, used him as a study. Yeah. And so how, I guess my book just ends with him dying of pneumonia. I don't, didn't know. How in the world did they, um, uh, uh, the language thing to find out all about him? I mean, how'd that happen? Well, I mean, there was lots of professors who were interested, but yeah. that tribe had a different language for, for the men than it did for the women. And, oh. and little kids spoke the women's language until they went through their rite of passage if they're oh. a boy and then they were able to learn and then speak the men's language. Like, there are so many things about that tribe that were unique, unique in the whole world. Wow. Really incredible. That is, I've got to reread that again and follow up on that, because that just fascinates me. Because, you know, the way the world's going, you know, it could happen again. If somebody wanted to write a novel, I'd really be a novelist, the last person yeah. left. You know, of course, people have tried to write that. But well, the the reason that, you know, I keep bringing up the, the Pleistocene area is that that's not our only ice age. We've been in many ice ages right. on this planet. And the fact that, that humans kind of became what we are now, like the modern Homo sapien, during this Pleistocene period, you know, when the poles were completely covered with ice and there was just a narrow band around the equator that, that was really habitable. But also, you know, it was like 30,000 years ago that people first came out of Asia and into Beringia, which is, you know, the underwater portion between Alaska and Russia. And we talk about it as land bridge, and that's such a mistake. Yeah. Because um, it was about 60 miles or so from uh, from Asia to North America, but it was hundreds of miles from north to south. So to call it a bridge is ridiculous. But about 30,000 years ago is when they first started to come into that area, but because there was massive ice sheets, like the Cordilleran ice sheet that went you know, all the way to Idaho, they weren't able to continue traveling past interior Alaska. You know, they, they were stuck there in Alaska and Beringia and on the Aleutians for 15,000 years, 20,000 years. It's a long time. It's a long time. And some people think that that's why there's not really advanced civilizations in North and South America as compared to Europe and, sure. um, and Central Asia because uh, people have just had less time to get going here. Yeah. I'm not saying that, that that's correct, but that is one of the theories. Yeah. Also, what's interesting to me as, as an elder to try to grapple with is that America, you know, because in our blood, your blood, my blood, we have um, a relative way back that came over in the Mayflower. Look how quickly, I mean... So Europe or nobody had electricity. Right. It's the ones from here that, you know, Thomas Edison, we were the leader. So why was that? Because we had the freedom to do it? Or? I don't know. Um, Jared Diamond wrote a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel uh -huh. that talked about how some societies advanced technologically while others did not. And you go to like the cradle of humankind um, uh -huh. in the Rift Valley in, in like Ethiopia, uh -huh. um, not a technologically advanced society. So how did this happen? And that's really the thesis of his book. And he breaks down his uh -huh. theories on that, which yeah. basically comes down to access and interactions with guns, germs, and steel. Okay, that's interesting. Because if a civilization like in the Rift Valley were 
perfectly content with their life and didn't desire to change it, why would they? Sure. Yeah. Well, some people have this, this unchecked ambition and, uh, you know, a sense of nostalgia where they want to create more in their life than they can use so that they can leave it behind so that there'll be a memory of them or something like that. Other people do not have that. And it's not, not saying one way is better than another at all. Who am I to say? Right. But there's, there's some people that are pretty darn happy that, you know, they don't necessarily have that ambition. They're happy to get by with just enough. And when they're gone, they're gone. And that's it. That's a very interesting concept. And, you know, there's such a thing as hybrid vigor and this new country and it's, you know, it's wilderness, except for the native people that went on the same for years and years and years and didn't, you know, of course they were warring too. I mean, you know, there's all that stuff, that dynamic, but maybe the hybrid vigor of them crossing and, and then these different cultures all, you know, because uh, the America's unique that way. It was the new world, the last frontier, you know, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at, like, just Alaska, you have the Eskimo, the Inuit, the Aleut, and then, you know, you've got Athabascans and Klingits, and everybody yeah. looked physically different from each other. Yeah. And And these were the first peoples to come across and stay there. I think that the people that continued migrating and moving were often the the rejects of society, right? Um, so they're like, hey, you're no longer welcome to be here. You got to keep going. Like, where do I go? Well, I can't go back. I, I can't go back to Asia. What's What happens if I keep going east? Well, we, we don't know. Nobody's ever done that. All right, well, I'm going to go over there and find out. And then, you know, the rejects from that society have to keep going and eventually they go south. Um, and that's kind of how people... Um, came to the East Coast on the Mayflower, like they weren't, yeah, they weren't able to function the way they wanted to in Britain. So it's like, all right, let's sail west and see what happens. Yeah. What's really interesting to me, especially when I go back to like New Hampshire on the East Coast, uh, there are descendants of those first settlers who, you know, made this massive, adventurous, scary crossing of the Atlantic, got to America. As soon as they got out of the boat, they built a house and they've stayed there for 10 generations. That's amazing. It is kind of amazing, isn't it? It is. But yet there was that um, go west young man thing and the orphans and there were, you know, my daddy was orphaned, but that wasn't unusual. There were thousands of orphans because um, tuberculosis was rampant and, and the Irish that came over and the Germans that came over they were poor and so and they had orphan trains that brought orphans out west and a lot of them spilled off into that era of charlie russell the cow hand you know the lonely cow hand that went from ranch to ranch to make a living were generally orphans Mm -hmm. and And, and like pony express advertised specifically for orphans yes they did that's what they were looking for they did so you had these these people coming out and they met, well, a lot of them, you know, married, uh, well, they had children with the Indian, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, that was that. But this great um, meshing and, um, and children of a mixed hybrid vigor, I call it. Yeah. Uh, and so there's no real American. Yeah, no. Never it, has it, been. Sure, in, in, including Native Americans, like the the, the mm-hmm. tribes were were dissimilar as well. Kind of yeah. like what I was talking about with uh, yeah. with the different tribes that I could think of off the top of my head from Alaska. But yeah, no, I like being here. It's a good place. I do too. It's the best place. It's just endlessly fascinating, and I haven't seen it all. I've been here fifty four years, yeah, and I've seen a lot of it. You know, the outback, but I just want to go see it all. You know, it's just, and the people, people are absolutely, the old timers we're losing, we lost a lot of stories. I tried to capture a lot of them, but oh my goodness. And in trunks and letters, if any of you have out there, anybody that listens to this has letters uh, from ancestors, you know, get them to our museum. 
and get them archived. Yeah. Because that's the stuff, the real stuff. Like you want to know about your wildlife habitat. I mean, you know, what wildlife was here. That'll be in the letters. It'll be in the diaries sure. that people keep. I mean, that's how I found that um, moose were a historic animal in Oregon. Wow. Um, and ODFW said for years that they wouldn't create a moose recovery plan for the few moose that were here uh-huh. because they were not a normal species here. They didn't used to be here. And then I found that in 1903, we had a regulated moose season in Oregon. Oh, amazing. So it's like, all right, what now? It's like, well, we're still not going to do the work. We don't care about moose. But, um, but they used to be here. And had I not had that old scrapbook that somebody had pasted the hunting regulations into, yep. um, then there may, there may be no evidence left whatsoever that, uh, that they are in fact a historic species in Oregon. Yep. Sure would be nice if we could protect them and not just let oh. wolves eat, eat every last one of them. Yeah. I got too many passions, but one of them is history. Uh, and historians are just now, well, not just now, but more than ever saying that that is our most valuable resource is the little grandma or the wife in an isolated place that puts down things like that. That's our only record of that isolated area we have. Yeah. Yeah. And diaries are so important because tomorrow's history, you know, yesterday, I mean, every day that we live, and the day before is history. And if it isn't recorded, those little details get lost and big news takes over. You know, you can't hear that stuff. But it's the little person that keeps the the diaries or writes a letter. You know, we don't write letters anymore. Um, so that stuff isn't recorded. Yeah. You know, postcards used to come with just one thing. Saw a grizzly bear today. Yeah. You know, well, there it is. There's your... There's right. your proof. Or photograph, an old photograph. Um, those glass plates. Um, I have a book on that that some woman kept. The only records we have. Right. Yeah. And it, and what what's interesting to me about it is that what you might write down or take a picture of today could seem like, like it's of no consequence. Right. Um, you have no idea how big of a deal... That could be in a hundred years or a thousand yeah. years. Even the weather, mostly the weather. I mean, good Lord, you know, the, the weather, day-to-day thing of weather. Yeah. Um, you know, they make a big deal of big events. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I read a thing about, well, I about Judge Tippett, you know, when they had such a, a drought that, you know, cattle died. A whole bunch of cattle just died. They didn't have any feed, and they couldn't get the water, and they died. That yeah. was a long, long time ago. Right. Something that can happen. And it, and it happens, and floods, you know, but if nobody writes it down or saves a newspaper or archives, right now we're learning the value of archiving, and um, it's so, it's like we couldn't figure out Ishii, but, you know, somebody's doing it, and and we need, we need to know, and this is often said, we need to know where we came from so we can go forward and not make the same mistake again. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> give, us the, give us the best of luck. It's the best of luck. It yeah. seems to not get it, but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, good luck with your garden, Grandma. Um, let me know when the, when the scores start coming on. Okay, would you like some zucchini? I just picked it last night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like some zucchini. How about how about Kelsey? I bet she likes it. She, she does. She would also like some zucchini. Okay, I'm going to yeah. give you some of that and some plums okay. that someone brought me from my tree on the creek. Okay, thank you. Okay. All right, thanks, Grandma. You bet. Bye. I'm working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up. The other day we we're laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop that's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. 
I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, Oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade. It's like, you know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor, because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that, that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear that I take either into the woods or into the workplace. Like it's got to be able to outwork me. And I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code six ranch, that's the number six and the word ranch, you can get 25% off just about any of their products. Now I encourage you to do that. They're a great supporter of this show and a great supporter of this audience. Again, I love you guys. And I just want to pass this, uh, this discount and the savings on to you. If you want something from Stanley, I encourage you to get it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.